Hello, I'm Alina. Hello, I'm Janine. We're two sisters, two PhDs, relentlessly curious about too many things. This is Sister Doctor Squared. Did that sound like a legitimate cry, Alina? It sounded pretty upsetting. (laughs) Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode six of Sister Doctor Squared. Today, yes, we are talking about crying. Why do we cry? Why has this really odd, unique behavior evolved in humans? Are you ready to get into this, Alina? I am so ready. And before we do get into it, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording this episode and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Thank you, Alina. So to get started with this episode, I have found a really interesting review paper. Now, a review paper is a paper where they don't necessarily do their own experimental study, but they're going in just canvassing all of the literature on a topic to see What sense can we make of it? What's going on here? So this paper is by, now this name is Croatian, I think, so I'm going to give it a go, and I apologize if I mispronounce, Gurakanin and colleagues, and it's entitled Why Only Humans Shed Emotional Tears, and it was in the journal Human Nature. Now, as I said, like when you think about it, crying with tears is quite an odd and complex behavior. And as we all know, many animals produce some tears in response to some sort of assault to their eye. So if an animal is injured or hit in the face, or there could be some sort of toxic chemical or poison squirted near their face, there's some tears produced. Now, these are called reflex tears. They serve a protective effect. But when we think about emotional tears, so that is shedding tears because of an emotional feeling that has only ever been observed in humans to date. Mm. There's no other evidence that this is occurring in any other animal. That is super interesting. It is one of the things that makes us unique. It really is. And I don't know about you, but when you do feel the need to cry, it does feel quite involuntary. It's just something that happens, right? It yeah. just happens. You And sometimes you, you can maybe try and hold it back a bit, but that feeling is there and it, you often cannot control it. Especially if someone asks you, are you okay? That's right. You know, you can just be teetering on the edge, holding it all together, and then someone shows that little bit of compassion and it's waterwork city. Mm. So inconsiderate. (laughs) Why did you ask? (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) Yes. So it's important to think about this in terms of human evolution and to just realise that when we're looking at research into human evolution – There's going to be a lot of comparisons among closely related species, also looking at differences among modern cultures to try and put together what may have happened, come up with hypotheses or ideas for why and see, do they add up and make sense? It can be difficult to run experiments. We can't go back in time to see what the selective pressures were that may have driven certain behaviours, but we can make hypotheses and we can do these comparisons and see if it makes sense. Does that make sense? It does. So most people will be aware of Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin came up with the theory of evolution and he did do a little bit of work into human emotions 
And his conclusion was that emotional tears had no real function and it was just an incidental thing. He just concluded that there's some sort of mechanical, physical thing happening on the face that will cause these tears to drip down your cheeks and that there's no actual function. He did, however, conclude that an infant crying did serve an important function, and that is to elicit a response from the caregivers. Of course. Yes. So the paper really starts here. It starts with infant crying and thinking about what's going on there. So many, many social animals have what we call alarm calls. So this is some sort of way to notify other members of the species, and even there is some evidence that it can go across species, that there may be some sort of imminent danger. So the best example of an alarm call in humans is a scream. If we hear a scream, we all become alert and we are thinking, what's happening? Do I need to help? Yep. Stop what we're doing and look. So I'm just going to resist going off on the tangent on alarm calls now because that's a whole other very interesting topic and keep on track with the crying. Okay. What I found very interesting is that the paper noted that when infants are crying for the first at least six weeks, potentially longer, they do not produce any tears. It is a purely vocal call. Oh. I know. And I was like, really? And I thought, ooh, I'd like to go back in time to having my infant and see, were there really no tears? But then I went, actually, no, I don't really want to go back to that infant (laughs) phase. It was quite challenging. Quite happy that that phase finished, personally. Um, But, yeah, so apparently there's no... Tears being shed in those early months. Right. So it's just the noise. It's just a vocal call. (laughs) (laughs) That's all you really need, I I suppose, when you're an infant. Yes, and a lot of animals have a vocal call of the infants to display that they need some sort of caregiving. They need food, they need warmth, they need something. So a vocal call, quite common in an infant. But we see this emergence of these tears and it comes in the infant stage, but not straight away. And as we know, it persists all the way through the entire human lifespan. Certainly does. Yes. And they point out that as we age, the vocalization starts to drop. So the amount of vocalization or noise we make starts to decline, but the tears remain. Right. So it's kind of the opposite. Yeah. So it goes from being this initially purely vocal call to then a mixture of vocal with tears to then mostly tears with maybe a little bit of vocalization. So as we age, the tears become far more prominent and Mm. the noise itself far less prominent. Yes. That's fascinating. And it's right, you know, I'm just, imagine if you're in a work context and you certainly aren't going to, (laughs) (laughs) it's just sort of a quiet sob. No, maybe it just a tear rolls down the cheek and maybe one person may notice. Mm. Yes. So there's a very interesting transition occurring in the nature of crying across the human lifespan. And then there was this really funny quote from the paper that I have to read out. Human infants are among the most powerless and helpless creatures in the animal kingdom. That is quite amusing and definitely true. It is true. Human infants, they actually are completely useless. They can do nothing for themselves. They They need 100% of their care from someone. That's right. That's very different to other primates. Yep. Other mammals. Other mammals, yes, that can at least do some things for themselves. Human babies cannot 
even hold their head up. They can't hold on to anything for a while. They can't hold on to anything. Yeah. Yes. So So it makes sense why you would need a very audible cry to say, I need something. That's right. And if we looked at other primates where the infants are able to hold on and maintain that physical connection, they're not going to be crying as much. Mm. Fascinating. It is. So the paper did explain that there's some past research that shows that mothers can recognize their own baby's cry and that they can often determine that there are different types of cries. And I mean, I can remember hearing this when I had my infant that there's, you'll, you'll come to know the hunger cry versus the scared cry. And I, I always struggled this, like, really? <laughs> I don't know. I really found that difficult. And what I did, Alina, was I had a list of all of the things that could be the problem when the baby cried. Of course you made I, a list. Of course I made a list. A list it was like, okay, is the child hungry? Is it that? Yes, no. Okay, moving to the next item of the list. Is the child hot or cold? Yes, no. (laughs) I found that very helpful. Anyway, moving on. So, yes, and a lot of this past research has concluded that a lot of infant crying in humans is to maintain attachment. So, particularly strong in human babies because they cannot hold on in those early months. And if they are left alone, they cannot fend for themselves. Mm -hmm. There's also some research showing that if in some cultures a baby is kept in a sling or really close to their mother or parent all the time, they very rarely cry. So yes. more evidence to suggest, okay, a lot of it is around maintaining physical attachment. Interesting. Then they also mentioned what they called the super child hypothesis, which I hadn't heard about, which I also just love the naming of that one. And this is where they say that vigorous crying may have evolved because it is a very compelling and strong signal to the parents to assist the child and it prevents those parents from wanting to have another child straight away because they're so (laughs) consumed with this child. So here we can see that does make some sense where they're increasing the amount of time and effort that they give to that current child. So it's all about reducing competition between potential siblings Mm. and improving the survival of that individual child. So that's the super child. Yeah, so sibling rivalry begins with unborn siblings as well. That's right. Even not yet conceived siblings. (laughs) That's right. And I can certainly relate to there was was no way I was thinking of having another child when you're in those very... Very early months with the very vigorously crying super child. (laughs) Yes, I think that would be quite rare. Yeah. I thought you were going to raise your sibling rivalry towards me and how this was once I was born. You were quite unhappy about that, weren't you? I actually do vaguely. So when I, you were born when I was almost four Mm. and I do have vague memories of just being so irritated that this other person was here. <laughs> yes, you were you were quite um oh there were some instances of attempted violence towards me, weren't there, Janine? <laughs> Look, I don't remember that, but yes, I've heard stories. So have I. But Look, it's all it's all completely natural, Alina. <laughs> hmm. Yes, and look at us now. That's right. So, moving back to the paper, there was also some discussion around why in humans it's really important that this is a vocal signal because there are other ways you can signal. There could be pheromones, for example. They talked about the fact that vocalizations are very effective if you need communication 
day and night when the parents might be sleeping. And I thought, oh, that's yes. really interesting. Nothing will wake you up faster than a big cry. Exactly. They talked about the fact that the actual sound, it is quite a high frequency because this sort of sound doesn't travel very far when it's compared to a lower frequency. And the idea there is that the further the sound can travel, the more likely it is to attract predators. So at this stage, we can hopefully appreciate that crying in infants is very important and has a clear purpose. And everyone probably knew that before we even started talking, yes? (laughs) (laughs) So now we get to the real crux of the paper. Why does the crying persist into adulthood? And very interestingly, why does it shift in style from vocal to tearful? What is going on, Alina? So the authors of the paper propose three effects. And their idea is that it is a social mechanism, that this persistence of tearful crying is for social reasons. And then they give three different subpoints on that. So firstly, it's to encourage care from others. Makes sense. I think we can all yes. relate to that. Second point is that it promotes social bonding and social cohesion, which yes. I'm going to talk more about. And then the third point is that they think it reduces the chances of aggression. Mm, keeping the peace. Well, they gave some examples and said that we need a way of getting attention, but we don't want to annoy the caregivers too much because then they might start abusing this individual. Oh, right. Okay. I know. And also that it may be a way of getting our needs met within our immediate family members or tribe without being so obvious as to attract predators that may be lurking. Right. Yes. Okay. Yes. So I I think this sounds pretty reasonable, but then the authors rightly point out that, well, why don't we see this in loads of species if it performs these functions? Why don't we see the same tearful crying in other social species? Why is this particular to humans? And so then they go on to explain what they think is going on. And they've got sort of two ideas here. The first one is that in general, humans have a delayed childhood phase. So now if we compare humans to other primates and other mammals, the length of time it takes us to reach maturity is very extended. It's quite variable too. (laughs) True. (laughs) We're just talking about biological maturity here. Yes, right. Okay. And then the second reason is that humans have what is called extreme neoteny. Now, neoteny is a situation where an animal retains a lot of its baby-like features into adulthood. Okay. So you've got to think about this. Compare a baby human to an adult human. There are changes, but if we compared a baby chimp to an adult chimp, the changes are not as significant. So some examples are that our overall face shape is quite similar to the infant and we maintain a low amount of facial hair and hair on our body in general. So human adults have a tendency to be big versions of the infants, if that makes sense, especially if we compare to other animals. So just go and do some Googling and compare a baby chimp's face to an adult chimp's face. You'll you'll see what I'm talking about. So then the idea here, if we extend this, is that if humans in general have retained a lot of baby-like features, maybe crying has just come along for the ride. Yes, right. Okay. So just excusing male facial hair that does develop, Mm, mm. it's more hair everywhere else on the face that other primates will have. Okay. Yes. 
And I guess that humans as infants had this strong crying capacity, whereas non-human primates don't do that. That's right. Because they don't need to so much because they're not so completely useless. Yes, that's right. (laughs) So when we compare to other mammals and more recently primates, the loss of hair on the face and also the evolution of changes to the muscles of the face has enabled humans to show a lot more of a repertoire of facial expressions and body language. Mm, This is a big feature of humans. Yes, it can be very subtle but very important. Yes, and so one idea was, well, maybe the contortions of our facial muscles wasn't quite communicating enough and the, the tears have come along for the ride but they've persisted because it was providing something extra. Yes, Then they referenced some other really interesting studies, which I'll put the links up to the website because they're fascinating. In one study, they showed pictures of crying adults to participants, but they removed digitally the tears from the faces. And then they asked the participants, what emotion is being expressed here? And they had a lot of trouble identifying it. Interesting. Yes. And they listed, or is it awe? Is it concern? Puzzlement? contemplation. Some did identify sadness, but they didn't identify the degree of sadness correctly, if that makes sense. So if they did say it was sadness, it wasn't, they weren't able to say it was as sad as it really was. Yeah. It wasn't so obvious as it would have been if they were actually looking at people crying with tears. Yes. And, or they completely got it wrong and said, I think they're just concerned or, or displaying a feeling of awe. That is really interesting. So we've really become accustomed to interpreting crying with the presence of tears. The tears are very important. And another study has shown that within 50 milliseconds of seeing tears, humans will recognize the emotion of sadness and know that a person is upset and needing some support. Wow, 50 milliseconds. 50 milliseconds, yep. So that's really strong support to say that this is a very important evolutionary function. Yes. So then they go on to talk about in adult crying, we need to start thinking about the sender and the receiver. So firstly, it seems that crying signals some distress and promotes social bonding. There's some more evidence in that you are less likely to shed tears in front of strangers. You're much more likely to shed tears when you are around those that you trust. Yes. And I was thinking what we talked about before, when something's going on for you and you're kind of holding it together, and then someone who you probably do trust and who cares about you asks you, are you okay? That's when they come out, right? Yeah. So at this point, what we think is going on is that tears first evolved in infants in order to trigger caregiving, and that this process was co-opted into adults too. So if we think of it this way, those, maybe some older children that were still crying with tears, had some sort of survival advantage over those that did not. And then similarly, in adults, as those tears have been pulled through older and older individuals, it must have conferred some sort of survival benefit. It looks like it maybe was all able to happen because of that neoteny, because we had a tendency to retain juvenile traits in general. Fascinating. And it's likely that these tears are what we call an honest signal, which is a big theme in evolutionary biology. This just means this signal means something and is communicating something that is real and it is very hard to fake it. Yes. Maybe some people can fake tears, but they're usually drawing on some 
memory of a painful experience or thought to do so, to just cry spontaneously is very difficult. Yes, and I know, I remember seeing interviews with some actors, they talked about that. They have to pull on some really disturbing, difficult memory to be able to cry on cue. Which is very skillful in itself. It is. So again, we don't see tearful crying in other apes. It is most likely that this is something that has evolved recently in humans rather than it being present across many mammals or many primates and being lost multiple, multiple, multiple times. And that's yeah, what we call parsimony. The idea of parsimony is that the, the most simple explanation for how this evolved is probably what happened. Yes, that definitely seems like the most logical explanation. Yes. So I've got another quote here that I thought summed things up at this point very well. So humans seem to be the only species in which adult individuals possess an unambiguous and honest, silent signaling mechanism that allows them to transmit information about their powerlessness and need for help. That was a good one, I thought. And we see that it benefits the sender because it's really about showing their helplessness, their need for some assistance. It gets them the help and hopefully avoids aggression. Think about if you're having a heated argument with someone and you see them start to cry. You're immediately going to change your tack, aren't you? Yeah, I think most people would do that. Yeah. And we also see that it is benefiting the receiver. This is where a genetically related caregiver, by providing that care, is improving the outcomes for their relatives. And it also promotes social bonding potentially with unrelated individuals. And this could be important in the future if those social bonds prove to be very important and improving cohesion of the group and survival of the entire group. So all of these things improve social connections and overall social cohesion. The person that cried feels supported by the person that comforted them and the person that comforted them feels more connected to the crier. Yeah, okay. So we can see evolution working in two ways. There's a clear honest signal from the sender and it's promoting an appropriate and beneficial response from the receiver. So the paper also mentioned the idea that that's very much out there that, gee, doesn't it feel good to have a good cry or sometimes you need to have a good cry and let it all out. Yep. And so this paper was from 2018 and they state at that point there was no solid studies that showed that to be the case. So I don't think anyone has really done an investigation of within individuals, is there any major shift in their body before and after a big cry? It's not to say that that's not happening, but we don't have any evidence for it, at least from 2018 when this paper was published. But it does seem likely that If this is part of what's going on, it doesn't seem to be the reason why it evolved in the first place. No, that makes sense. So then they, in the paper, go on to explain that it may be involved in the evolution of empathy in general in humans, a very human trait. Also the fact that we can cry when we're really happy or overwhelmed with good feelings. Yes. And so the overall idea here is we're not necessarily seeking help or sympathy, but that this is still promoting social bonding. So I was thinking, okay, yeah, you all get the feels together. It feels good. You feel connected to the people around you. And that promotes that social cohesion. That's right. So my main take home from this paper is that the capacity of humans to shed emotional tears and our ability to understand their meaning is very much tied in with us being a very social species, and has likely contributed to our evolutionary success. Very interesting. 
So if you're the sender and you're feeling the need to cry, and I'm sure a lot of us have felt the need to cry over the last year with all of the very distressing things going on in the world, it makes total sense to have a cry and there's nothing wrong with you if that's how you're feeling. It is an important and honest signal. Let it out. Absolutely. And for the receiver at the level of the whole population, when you see someone crying, you do feel that strong need to help. And this is good. This is what it's for. That's right. I'm wondering though about people do cry when they're on their own sometimes, Janine. Mm. And so how does that fit in with the explanation about crying is something that promotes social bonding? No, they didn't really go into that. That's a good question. I did read an ABC article that talked a little bit about this and it mentions a few things, but some of the things it covers was that certainly trying to hold in a cry can make you feel worse. Mm. And so if you need to cry and you're alone, you're just going to do it. Mm -hmm. But also it talked about that even if you do cry on your own, you may then tell somebody about that. And so you're still sharing that crying experience with someone and that's that social bonding happening. Yes, so maybe you're telling somebody later and then that's when the social bonding kicks in. Yeah, which I thought was interesting. Very interesting stuff. Thanks, Janine, for persevering through quite a long paper. No worries. So you've gone into the evolutionary biology of crying and why all humans have this innate capacity and why it's important. Yes. I wanted to get into how crying differs across cultures. Cool. And so I found a study led by Diane Hemmett in the Netherlands, and it's from 2010. And this was the international study on adult crying. And what they did is look at how crying differs across countries and how this relates to different characteristics of those countries. Mm, Very interesting. Now, interesting tidbit I read in this paper, Janine. As you know, Darwin studied crying. And when it comes to cultural differences in crying, Darwin thought that crying was less common in westernised countries than in non-westernised countries. Okay. So less common in what he termed civilised society. Okay. So I thought that was interesting. And let's just see how that plays out in this study. Okay. Now, what sort of country characteristics were they looking at? Well, they've come at this from three broad angles. Distress, social norms about expressing emotion, and personality. These are all things that influence crying at the individual level. Mm Mm-hmm. And they're trying to see whether differences in crying across countries can be best explained by levels of distress in countries, by social norms about expressing emotions, or by personality types that, I guess, typify countries. So they've looked at individual level factors to do with distress, emotional expressiveness, and personality, and then tried to extrapolate these out to country level factors. So just a basic example when it comes to distress, let's say facing extreme hardship is something that can make individuals cry, of course. Yes, of which we've seen a lot of that over the past year, of course. Exactly. Then maybe if we look at poverty at the country level, we can see if this is linked with tendency for people to cry in that country. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So by looking at what's driving crying and how this differs across countries, this gives us a sense of how culture influences crying. 
They also looked at how gender affects these different relationships. I'm not going to talk too much about that because there's quite a lot to cover, but do check out the full paper if you want to know more on that front. Mm -hmm. So the method of this paper is a big chunk of the paper itself. It's quite an undertaking to come up with ways to measure distress, emotional expressiveness and personality, but mapping those things onto valid country level data. Mm. But it's actually pretty interesting method. So I'm going to spend a bit of time on that before I hit you with what they found, because we kind of really need that to appreciate the findings. Yep. Okay. Because Janine, for example, how do you measure the emotional expressiveness of a country? I do not know, Alina. Exactly. (laughs) Well, they looked at what things might allow for emotional expressiveness, like freedom and tolerance. Mm, Okay. So some of the things they looked at at the country level were civil rights, level of democracy, individualism, and the tightness, looseness of a country which I thought was slightly funny phraseology. Yes. So tightness meaning strict. So a strict country like Singapore where chewing gum was outlawed as opposed to a more liberal country like Australia. Yep. We're pretty loose in Australia. (laughs) We are. (laughs) Australia. (laughs) So that's some of the ways that they measured a country's emotional expressiveness. Yep. Or let's say they took a pretty good estimate at it. Mm-hmm. So how do you measure personality at the country level? Mm. Well, this one's a bit more straightforward. So mm-hmm. you've surely heard of personality tests, yes. the big five personality traits. Yep. Neuroticism, extroversion, openness, conscientiousness, and agreeableness. So they've taken existing data and used the aggregate responses to represent the average for a country. So did they go and just find loads of studies on all different topics that have looked at those measures and formed averages for different countries? Yeah, they've selected some existing data from previous research to include in this. And they were specifically interested in neuroticism and extroversion. Mm -hmm. So neuroticism being the extent to which you experience the world as threatening, frightening, Mm. unsafe, and extroversion being energy level and the extent to which you want and need to be around other people, being very social. Mm -hmm. Why these two? Well, they'd been shown in previous research to be associated with crying. Mm -hmm. So someone who's more neurotic is probably more likely to feel worried and distressed As for extroversion, they suggest this might be to do with more extroverted people being more expressive and or Mm -hmm. wanting to seek out that social support. And the other concept was distress. So I touched on that before with hardship. So country level distress was measured in economic terms, Mm -hmm. like through gross national product per capita, with existing data on depression and subjective well-being. Okay. And how extreme the country climate is. So the expectation here, yeah, being that extreme climates are distressing and people Mm -hmm. who live in either really hot or really cold climates will cry more. So distress was looked at from three very distinct angles. And certainly in terms of the climate, I can definitely relate to that. (laughs) (laughs) Being really, really hot or really, really cold. Yes. Okay, so that's an overview of the country-level characteristics. Now, to measure crying, they did a survey. Uh, so a new survey of humans, and there were just under 2,500 women and men, mm-hmm. mostly university students. 
They were from 37 countries across Asia, Africa, North America, South America, Oceania, the Caribbean and Europe. Can I just say well done to the researchers for coordinating all of that. It sounds very difficult. Yes, this is like I said before, this is quite an undertaking this study. Yes. And so these women and men were asked about their tendency to cry mm-hmm. from hardly to very easily as well as how long it had been since they last cried. Okay. So, for example, less than a day ago right through to more than a year ago. And together these were used to give an idea of crying tendency. So they're taking the average country crying scores and then relating them to the country-level characteristics I went through. Mm-hmm. Okay, so results. When it came to distress, they didn't actually find a lot of support to say that people in countries that experience more economic and psychological distress cry more. Mm. Actually, richer countries reported more rather than less crying. Even when it came to subjective well-being, it was happier countries that reported more crying. Are you with me, Janine? It's very interesting. It is. There was one measure of distress that did link with crying in the way expected. Countries with harsher climates reported less time since the last crying episode. Uh, so they cried more recently. Yes. Okay. But aside from that, overall it looked like more distress does not necessarily mean more crying. Mm-hmm. The opposite in some cases. So let's go to expressing emotions. Now, tightness, looseness <laughs> – didn't appear to be linked with crying in the way expected, and religiosity didn't seem to be linked with crying. Mm. That was another uh, way in which they measured emotional expressiveness Mm -hmm. or tapped into that concept. But more crying was reported in countries that have better civil rights, Mm. higher democracy, are more individualistic, and have less hierarchy, so less power differential. Mm -hmm. So in all, there is a decent level of support here for the idea that crying was related to social norms about expressing emotion. Mm -hmm. Okay, and now personality. So remember they focused on neuroticism and extroversion. Mm -hmm. Now, neuroticism at the country level didn't seem to be linked with crying. Extroversion was a bit of a mixed bag. But it seemed with good reason and that quite fortuitously helps us interpret the results as a whole. So let me explain. In this study, they used two different scales to measure extroversion, and these scales differ in their central focus of what extroversion is. Okay. So one scale has more of an emphasis on sociability, that being around people part of extroversion. Yep. And one has more of an emphasis on being active and being assertive. Mm -hmm. Now, crying was linked with extroversion on this latter scale, but not for the other with higher scores on the scale linked with more crying. In other words, crying seemed to be more frequent in extroverted countries in the sense that these countries allow for that assertive behaviour. So what does it all mean? Well, crying is an evolutionarily important function Mm. that all humans do, Mm. but this study suggests there definitely are cultural differences in crying tendency, Mm -hmm. and that certainly makes sense. And this study suggests that what's driving crying at the country level isn't so much about how distressed people are, Mm -hmm. but more whether that kind of emotional expression is enabled or is accepted in the country that they live in. So it's like whether it's first world problems or third world problems, the urge to cry is probably there for all humans and the differences are more about 
whether they might be suppressing the tears because of the cultural situation rather than them having more or less to cry about. That's exactly right. Got it. So it's not making any value judgment about, you know, what yes. – what- Valid reasons for crying. So more crying was seen in those countries that enjoy more freedom, more wealth, more democracy, and more tolerance around emotional expression. Yes. And these are the things that appear to support or enable crying at that country level, Mm. according to this study. So these things don't make you cry directly, but they're part of the ingredients of creating an environment where crying is more socially and culturally normal. Yes. And it makes me reflect on this with gratitude, actually, Mm, mm. because the next time I'm having a big old cry, being someone who's lucky enough to live in one of those wealthier, more democratic, liberal, Mm. loose, (laughs) (laughs) loose countries, I might reflect on the cultural norms around me that enable that expression. You know what I mean? Yes. And I think any cultural differences that we do see now It doesn't mean the original function of crying that we talked about has gone away. It's more likely that the social bonding that crying seems to be involved in is occurring in culturally relevant ways. Yes, that's exactly right. Mm. And, by the way, this study suggests Darwin was way off. Yes. Right? Yes. He said that crying was less frequent in westernised society among the civilised people. Bow, bow. Bow, bow. (laughs) (laughs) Quite the opposite. And I think in different cultural contexts, crying is starting to be viewed differently. So in certain cultures, under certain regimes, this expression may not be promoting social bonding and social cohesion. So it needs to be suppressed. Exactly. And that's another whole set of interesting studies, Janine, to look at this over long periods of time and see Mm. how things are changing temporally. Fascinating. Yes. So I think like you, next time I feel the urge to cry, I'm going to fully give into it and really be thankful that I can do that. Let it out. (laughs) And the audible part too, Janine, not just the tears. (laughs) Let it all out. Let it rip. (laughs) All right, Alina, what brought out your inner square recently? Well, I was out driving with my partner and as we're driving along, we see this cute as dog in the car beside us, hanging out the back of the window, you know, soaking up the sun and the breeze and just loving Loving life. life. Yeah. That's right. Uh, But he was wearing a proper set of what looked like full-on ski goggles. (laughs) What? Can you imagine? No. (laughs) So we see this and think, It's just hysterical. You know, it's just a very human construct on a dog's face. Yeah. (laughs) We completely loved it. It was the best thing all day. So this car drives past and we spent the next 10 minutes or so trying to catch up just to see this doggo in his goggos again. And as hysterical and cute as this was, it wasn't a joke, Janine, because Mm -hmm. these weren't like cheap looking human goggles. Oh, These were clearly fitted for a dog's head morphology. Really? It was. And so we're like, what is this? Yeah. So my inner square was me Googling (laughs) dog goggles and finding out that there's actually a decent market for these dog goggles. Or doggles, as they're sometimes called. Love it. Because some dog parents Mm. are quite concerned about eye protection for their poochie. (laughs) Yep. 
Especially the more active dogs. Okay. So, Janine and fellow squares, if you Google dog goggles, which you, you just should anyway. I'm going to. I need to see this. The pictures are fabulous and will make you smile. Yep. So you'll see what I'm talking about. Okay. Now, one particular outlet has quite a range indeed. Okay. They've got doggles for working, for hunting, <laughs> for health, and for adventure. <laughs> And it's got images of dogs with goggles. They're like out, you know, canyoning with their human. Oh, are you serious? One's stand-up paddle boarding. <laughs> One's probably base jumping somewhere else. So is the idea that they're providing sun protection? It's for fashion, Janine. No, I'm kidding. It's Yeah, it's, it's for protection. So they're for eye protection. I think most commonly they're used to protect the eyes from UV. Yes. So, which makes sense if you've got a dog that's out in the sun a lot. Okay. They're also used for protection from dust and debris. Mm-hmm. So, if you've got a working dog that's on site where there's potentially <laughs> flying debris around that might damage the eye. Uh-huh. And then I read in some cases they might be used for dogs that have certain eye conditions. Yeah. Just to give the eyes more protection. Okay. And then I read that military dogs might even wear night vision doggles. <laughs> Which I thought was super cool. So Um, there you go. I laughed and then I learned and then I laughed some more. Well, what I've learned so far from this episode is that next time I'm crying, I might just Google some doggles. Yes, that's right. (laughs) It was an inner square that was themed to our topic of crying in the eyes. (laughs) And so what brought out your inner square, Janine? Well, as always, mine is a lot more, I would say, practical and useful in nature. I was <laughs> not to say that buying toggles isn't useful. I also so. looked up whether they have them for cats. <laughs> of course you did. They don't. Okay. Not quite the same market anyway. Maybe there's a business idea there for you, Alina. Mm. <laughs> so, look, I recently got a new mobile phone and... Alina, you all know that I take pride in pushing all devices as long as I possibly can. This phone I pushed to over five years old. It was... And it wasn't new to begin with. (laughs) No, and it was starting to get to the point where it really was malfunctioning and not able to complete some basic things. It got to the point where if I was trying to send a text message, it just stopped telling me what numbers were for which people. So it would just give me the numbers and I'd have to be like, oh, hang on, who's this again? (laughs) So it really started to lose functionality after, you know, five and a half years. So I finally caved and went, fine, I'll get a new phone. You know, the reason is this planned obsolescence of tech is one of my biggest pet peeves. So I just try and fight it as much as I can. Fair enough. Anyway, so I dished out, got a new phone and... I went, you know what, I really want to see if I can push this one longer than five and a half years. How can I do that? So I've been doing a lot of research around how can I extend the life of my phone as much as possible. <laughs> I have. And I've learned heaps. So some that of the most is obvious very squarey. I know. Some of the most obvious things is avoiding extremes of temperature. Because, of course. Yep. Because it has an effect on the battery. And that's what I started to learn is that the better I can take care of the battery, the better the phone's going to function in general. Then I learned all about the newer batteries in phones are different to the old batteries. Now, I had this idea in my head that 
It is better to let a battery completely flatten before you recharge oh, it. Oh, yes. That's a common misconception. Mm. It's well, not great I, for the phone. Yeah, I had that in my head. And so then I've gone and done this research and it's also very stressful for them to be being charged beyond 100%. You know, when you've just left it on charge for ages and it's yeah, just- Yeah, people charge their phone overnight and it's quite bad for the battery. It's really bad for the battery. So there was really clear information that your phone's happiest place is around 50%. And they really like between 20% and 80% charge. That's their happy zone. Oh, I can't relate to that. As soon as it's under 50, I start to get a bit uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) See, look, I would be someone who's much more likely to be like on 4% going, I really need to charge this phone now. (laughs) Yeah, you're one of those people. That makes me quite stressed indeed. My phone rarely gets to 20% before I will charge it. There you go. Even 30%. And I'm like, yeah, I'll just give it a bit of a charge, I think. Yes. And also if you can charge it um, through a USB on your computer so it's charging slowly, that's better than just a quick charge up through the mains power. So I just learned so much about this and even was able to download an app that will give me a little notification when I am charging the phone when it's gotten to 80% so I can turn the charger off. How cool. That is so nerdy. I know. I am so excited. So you've gone and learned about battery conservation and Mm -hmm. gone a step further and downloaded an app to assist you with your battery conservation. I have. And to implement all of the things that you learned. Yes. I think we need some links up on the website to this because that's very useful. It is. I know. And I'll I'll put some links up. There were lots of good tips, like just turning down your brightness in general will slow down how much batteries you use and it's all helping. And my goal is I want to push this phone six or more years. I want to do it. All right. Well, you can report back in that time and just let us know how you're going. (laughs) I will. And there were also tips about um, if you need to turn it off for a while. So say you're travelling or whatever, like the what charge it should be on before you do that. So yes, there you turning go. your phone, yes, giving it a break every so often, that's important. Just like human beings, Janine. Yeah. We all need a break. We do. We all need to switch off every so often. Yep. So this has turned into some self-care this episode, hasn't it? We just sometimes need to turn the phone off and have a big cry. And I think we should leave it there. I think we should. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Bye. See you.